Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is David Baltimore, Ph.D. of the California Institute of Technology, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 28, 2011. Okay, here too. <laughs> Who is working on uh, poliovirus and did this fantastic work at that time was a very, very young, uh, young scientist. So he already had, uh, uh, his reputation preceded him a long time before I met him, actually. But uh, um, as you know, he spent most of his career at, at MIT, um, brief period at the SORC, um, and uh, has been president of two universities, at Rockefeller, and then uh, subsequently, uh, a little bit later, Caltech. He's, of course, very famous for getting the Nobel Prize in 75 for essentially the reversed order of the, the then central dogma uh, through the discovery uh, of reverse transcriptase. Um, he's just done a lot of really wonderful things. And uh, on top of all of that, he's uh, a generous person. He's pretty unpretentious for a scientist. Uh, he's uh, produced an unbelievable number. You know, I'm, I'm not remembering how many people like me. <laughs> yeah. He's produced an unbelievable number of trainees, which is a very good assay for, for a person, actually. Uh, and there are others who haven't <laughs> produced as many for different reasons. Um, and so, I mean, the world is populated with David's uh, very successful uh, protégés. Um, I would say that uh, uh, He's very many other characteristics. He's very direct, and I would say probably accurately, he doesn't suffer fools readily, and he had to deal with quite a few of those, at least at one of the places he worked at. So uh, uh, just to be a little bit un <laughs> uh, politically incorrect. Um, but anyway, uh, David I got to know very well over, over a long time, and we actually had a chance to work do similar work together over the last five or so years because we were, we were both working with the Gates Foundation on, on uh, humanized mice for various projects. So anyway, it's, um, it's a great pleasure to see you again and have, hear your wonderful, I'm sure, talk. Welcome, David Baltimore. Yeah. It's nice of you all to stay. It's been a long day, uh, but a very exciting one, and appropriately so, to celebrate an institution's 200th year of existence. Uh, the reason that Richard heard about me so many years ago is that I guess I've been doing science for about a quarter of that time, um, which is just daunting to think back on. I hadn't, wouldn't have really thought about it if Harold hadn't estimated his 20 percent. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's terrific to have a symposium to celebrate uh, an institution's long period of time. It makes you think back. It's a little hard to imagine what science was like 200 years ago. Um, but it is possible to think back to what science was like 50 years ago. And it just bears no relation to what we can do today. Um, and it, it has been a, a, a pleasure and a tremendous satisfaction to see this uh, remarkable development of capability so that we could
take apart the skin the way we were just hearing about. Um, microRNAs are a, figure out how to get to the next slide. <laughs> um, maybe this thing. No, not this thing. <laughs> um, there's something I don't know. No. It's a test. There you oh. go. <laughs> he hidden it away from me. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about microRNAs. And Phil Sharp uh, gave a wonderful introduction, which makes this slide in particular unnecessary. Uh, I will say that I'm not totally happy with the estimates of either the number of microRNAs, which is generally quoted as 1,000, which is probably an overestimate, nor with the number of genes that are controlled by microRNAs, which I'm not sure are as many as we think. But there is no question that they are extremely important. And the key things about microRNAs are, one, that they're transcribed by Paul II, and therefore their own regulation is, in, 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 in principle, as complicated as the regulation of the transcription of any gene. And thus, they become part of the network of gene control. And that once they're packed into the risk complex, they're very stable. And there are clearly mechanisms for destabilizing them. There probably are interesting stories to be told about half-lives. But in general, they're really very stable when they get out uh, into the risk complex and start looking for messenger RNAs to control. So microRNAs, then, are a piece of the regulatory puzzle. And it is sort of amazing that we thought so much about regulation without knowing of their existence for so many years. In a sense, what they've done in the last five years or so is to be upgraded from what looked like fine-tuning agents. And they are fine-tuning agents. But that was sort of a, 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 a way of considering them to be peripheral to the central activities of regulation, to be upgraded into a partnership with transcription factors and signal transduction proteins and others that regulate uh, the networks of regulation, uh, the, the networks of control that combine together to be the regulation of complex organisms. So I want to talk today only about how they integrate into the regulation of hematopoietic cells, and particularly the cells of the innate immune system, cells that get lots of attention here in particular, uh, that mediate inflammatory responses. So why do we have microRNAs at all? We don't actually, of course, know the answer to that question terribly well, because it's a little hard to piece together their evolution. But as I've been thinking about this, particularly in the last couple of weeks, I was struck by the fact that our models for regulation of transcription, our models of, actually based largely on thinking about uh, maniotis's enhancer 
a lot of regulatory proteins all working together to influence the bound RNA polymerase at the transcriptional start site. Uh, and so it's a cooperative venture. It's not one protein interacting with one DNA sequence. It's many proteins acting with many, interacting with many DNA sequences and then interacting with many proteins on top of that. And so it's quite possible that as systems evolve in the, over the time of evolution, that it is hard to change the set point of transcription. That once you've put in place a transcriptional control system, changing it quantitatively is difficult because of the cooperativity of it. And so if you're going to tune transcription, so you have less of a gene product, more of a gene product, to do that, you need other mechanisms. And actually, I, I began to think when Phil was talking about the secondary sites downstream from the initiation of transcription, which of course fulfill that role. You can control those and get quantitative regulation of the output of, a, of an already established gene control system. Now, it is the immune system which, can, which uh, evolves fastest in any multicellular organism because it has to be tuned to the specific pathogen load of that organism. And as organisms in evolution change their niches, they change their pathogen loads and require that the immune system now quickly adapt itself so that they can live in, with, the, with the new uh, army of, of attackers that they're going to face. If this is all true, and if microRNAs are really designed around rapidly evolving systems, uh, then you might think that they would not regulate core activities, DNA synthesis, Krebs cycle, other things. And I don't know if that's true or not true, because I didn't have a chance to actually think a lot about it after, uh, after the thought came to my mind, so I put it on a slide. Uh, but, um, but I haven't heard much about regulation of core activities, uh, and so maybe this is a thought worth following up. All right, this is the hematopoietic series. Uh, oh, wait, I don't actually have this thing wrong. Uh, here's the hematopoietic stem cell. It gives rise to two kinds of progeny, one through the common lymphoid progenitor, it gives rise to T cells, B cells, and a number of ancillary cells. Through the common myeloid progenitor, it gives rise to erythrocytes, to monocytes and macrophages, neutrophils, and, and a variety of, of uh, other kinds of white blood cells, and of course, megakaryocytes that in turn give rise to platelets. It's a beautiful system, uh, and some kind artist around Caltech did a very nice job of separating it out here. And we made this slide because we want to identify the points at which microRNAs act. And you can, you can or can't see them, but you can see them in a little black blur, perhaps, uh, at all of these various choice points along the bifurcating systems of, of uh, differentiation 
that make up the hematopoietic series. And I think it's not unlikely that every pathway in hematopoiesis will have microRNAs involved. But these are ones, every one that's on there, are ones that where there is now pretty good mutagenic evidence, knockdown evidence, whatever, for their role in the differentiation of these particular outputs. And some of them act early on in the, in the maturation series. Uh, some of them act very late in the maturation series. Uh, but there, uh, there are many there. So the way I view them today is as collaborators with the transcription factors. And I've put a lot of transcription factors that are also known just in this little piece of the tree, the, the uh, formation of neutrophils and, and macrophages, uh, to show the interactions that are known with a variety of uh, microRNAs. So against that background, I want to just talk about a relatively simple system, uh, and that is microRNAs that might be induced by the NF-kappa B transcription factor. Now we chose to look at this because the la our laboratory has been involved in trying to understand this transcription factor for 25 years now. And what we knew uh, very well from our work and the work of many, many other people was that NF-kappa B was central to the inflammatory, is central to the inflammatory response, as well as to a variety of other uh, systems in the body. And that when you activate NF-kappa B in a cell, it sits there as a latent uh, ability. When you activate it, that many genes are turned on. And so once microRNA genes came to my consciousness, which is in the early part of uh, the 2000s, uh, this seemed like a reasonable question, and Konstantin Taganov uh, and Mark Bolden in particular uh, took a look at this question. And what they discovered was that when you induce NF-kappa B, for, for instance, by treating cells with lipopolysaccharides, you get three microRNAs highly induced. Two of these are themselves highly expressed. These are log curves. Uh, microRNA 146 and 155, and we've focused our attention on them. 132 uh, has other kinds of interests, uh, and, and I'm sure is yet an interesting story. And the bottom line of everything I'll say is that they have opposing effects, that 146A and 155 do exactly the opposite from each other. 146A is a repressor of inflammatory responses, so if we knock it out, we get hyper-responsiveness, and that leads ultimately to cancers of, of uh, the myeloid system in particular. Uh, 155 is, on the other hand, a repressor of inhibitors of the inflammatory reactions. MicroRNAs, by their nature, are inhibitors. And so the way they activate things is by inhibiting inhibitors. And so it's an activator, and its lack its knockout leads to a hyporesponsiveness of the immune system. And overproduction of 155 leads to a hyperproliferation in cancer. So these are directly opposing each other. And in a sense, it's not surprising that you can get myeloid cells if you knock out all uh, 
microRNAs, because if microRNAs are set up more generally in these opposing systems, then it fits, again, what Phil was saying about fine-tuning the regulation of a system. You have, in a sense, two springs, one going in each direction, and you can then set up, make a set point very effectively. Uh, and I don't, I don't know how many other systems can be described in this way. So how does it work mechanistically? Well, there's no actual relationship between what these various proteins, that these two proteins do. The way that MIR-146 works is this. Lipopolysaccharide activates NF-kappa B by activating through the TLR4 receptor. That goes through a single transduction pathway involving IRAC1 and TRAF6. And then, after a bunch of things happen, NF-kappa B gets activated. NF-kappa B goes and finds genes that have NF-kappa B binding sites, and that one of those genes is 146A, or 146. Uh, uh, it's actually all, all revolves around 146A, which is one of two 146 genes. This, in turn, goes and inhibits the, trans, the, the translation, or the the messenger RNA, of IRAC1 and TRAP6. Different amounts in different cells, and, and there's yet a story there. But it's a straightforward feedback inhibitor of the, of the uh, strength of this pathway. So we did a targeted deletion of it. Uh, if you do that, you knock out its very high expression in spleen. You knock out its activity in thymus and bone marrow. And the consequence, and I'm truncating lots of data, most of this being published already, is that uh, inflammatory cytokines go up. Take IL-6 as an example. If you treat uh, animals with, with lipopolysaccharide to induce an inflammatory response, you get a hyperproduction of IL-6, and it doesn't calm down terribly well. The consequence is that if you look at, if you treat animals with a dose of LPS such that you don't kill them, but you do stress them, then the knockout cells die, whereas wild-type cells resist it fine. And again, it's because of an over-response to, in this case, the analog of an infectious challenge. So to, to, to uh, summarize a lot of work, you get an over-response in macrophages. You can put them in culture and show that they're hyper-responsive. You get an extension of inflammatory responses. So a single activation leads to a much longer response than it would in a, in a wild-type animal. You see a lack of resolution of T-cell responses, uh, which is a consequence of a couple of things. One is poor Treg function, because the, the 146 knockout actually makes poor Tregs, T-regulatory cells. Uh, and we did show that in a paper with Sasha Radinsky, who uh, knows what he's talking about when it comes to Tregs. Uh, and there's a slow activation-induced cell death of T cells. So when you activate T cells, up they come, they do their thing, and then they die because they're very powerful cells. You don't want them around if you don't need them. Uh, but in these animals, they're very slow to die, and so you get an extended response. 
What happens over time is that as the animals age, you build up pathology, presumably as a consequence of this uh, continual overreaction to inflammatory stimuli, ultimately leading to a chronic inflammatory state. This is pretty obvious if you look at animals at about six months of age. Uh, they have huge spleens, they have huge lymph nodes, they are chronically producing an inflammatory uh, stimulus. And uh, these are spleen weights. It's, of course, very variable. Some animals respond earlier in life, some later. Probably a reflection of their particular uh, encounters with pathogens over time. The animals die early uh, as a consequence of this. Even the heads may have a small effect. If you look at these animals, you see infiltration of many organs, in particular liver, kidney, uh, with, with myeloid cell infiltrates, because these animals are now in a state of, of continual uh, inflammation. Uh, you see pro-inflammatory cytokines often at very high constitutive levels. And you start getting autoantibody production, because the consequence of this kind of, of uh, continual activation is um, autoimmune disease. Get a breakdown of peripheral T cell tolerance. And so what happens is in an animal that's a few months old, uh, the T cells all look activated. Those are in the, in the line that hatches the, the uh, wild type control, uh, or the filled uh, things are uh, wild type control. And you can see that there's an up regulation. These are animals that we haven't manipulated at all just left in the animal house, uh, of CD69. There's a down regulation of, of homing receptors, uh, 62L, and there's an up regulation of, of CD44. So this is um, a, a uh, serious problem. You wait a year with these animals. Now they have huge spleens. Uh, and uh, you start seeing frank tumors. And these are frank tumor cells. Uh, in, in large masses to be found in these animals. We did this on the background of C57 times 129 mice because that's what we used for the original knockouts. I mentioned that because it'll come up in a second. Uh, and that is uh, that at this point, Jimmy Zhao, who was an MD-PhD student, joined my lab. And we had a cohort of these animals that we had made on a different background, a pure C57 background. And we now, in fact, use those for everything because they're just a constant uh, background. And what he found was that these animals developed two kinds of tumors, uh, again, just about a year to 18 months of age. One kind are called myeloid sarcomas. Uh, they're a, a sort of solid tumor of myeloid cells. And the other 20% are lymphomas. You can see one here. This is a B-cell lymphoma. It's CD19 positive. Uh, almost all the cells are CD19 positive. And you get mixed B and T-cell lymphomas with some that are CD3 positive and some that are CD19 positive. But the bulk of the tumor these are these myeloid sarcomas that have CD11B on their surface. So what's the relationship with where we started to where we are now? 
that is, to NF kappa b. Well, Jimmy looked at the uh, animals, uh, the knockout animals, and compared them to wild-type animals from the point of view of gene expression in spleen cells in animals that show myeloid proliferation but not tumors. And what he found was that all of the marker genes that he used were up in their transcription, IL-6, TNF-alpha, A20, et cetera. This is true in spleen cells. It's true in bone marrow. It's true in purified uh, myeloid cells. And if you look at uh, the, the nuclei of such cells, you see an increased amount of P65, the, one of the subunits of NF-kappa B. So this clearly uh, upregulation of NF-kappa B, both at the level of the protein going to the nucleus and of the genes that are being regulated. So he said in that case, can we show that NF-kappa B is centrally involved in the tumorigenic process? So he, we crossed these uh, uh, um, 146 knockout animals with animals that lack the P50 subunit of NF-kappa B. For a variety of reasons, that's the easiest thing to do. And that then reduced spleen weights. It, uh, you can see that probably best here. Uh, it reduced uh, bone marrow, the bone marrow excess of um, uh, myeloid cells. And the uh, red blood cells, which are now being made in these animals in the spleen, because their bone marrow is so full of myeloid infiltration, uh, that also uh, clears up if you cross them with a P50 knot. These animals have not gotten tumors. Uh, they, have some, they have some problems still. We haven't regularized everything about them. Uh, but I think we can say pretty clearly that it is the, the continual activation of NF-kappa B over, the period, over this year of time which is causing the problem and really brings home the importance of controlling inflammation, uh, as was said by some earlier speaker, uh, I think Harold Varmus, actually, uh, at, in, in disease. So from the functional feedback studies, uh, from the functional studies, it appears that 146A is a feedback regulator of inflammatory activation, helping to shut down NF-kappa B. And if you lack 146, you get a high sensitivity to LPS, poor resolution of T cell activation, uh, many hallmarks of, of chronic inflammation, uh, and ultimately uh, cancer. Uh, you see that in the knockouts at six months by infiltration of myeloid cells and by a year with frank tumors of various sorts. The uh, the fact that all of this seems to need the P50 subunit of NF-kappa B suggests uh, that it's actually not a problem so much of NF-kappa B in the tumor cells as probably the, the inflammatory environment in which these cells have lived. So that's one side of the story. The other side is, as I said, well, I'll talk about MIR-155. Its overexpression causes a myeloproliferative disease uh, in just, just counter to what 146 does. 
This work was largely done by Ryan O'Connell and Dinesh Rao, uh, two postdoctoral fellows who are now uh, moving into independent positions. Uh, the experiment that, I, that got me thinking about all of this was a relatively simple experiment. You just inject lipopolysaccharide into a wild-type mouse, take out bone marrow at various times thereafter, and we looked at two things. We looked at MIR-155 activation, and sure enough, MIR-155 is activated very highly in bone marrow cells. That's mixed bone marrow cells. If you try to separate them, you find it particularly high in progenitor cells. And that calms down over time. And if you look at the cells that are being made by the bone marrow, if you injected PBS or you just had wild-type animals, you get about a third B cells, a third myeloid cells, and the other third is largely, in this case, they're un unlabeled, but they're largely erythroid precursors. And those are the big output from the bone marrow, red blood cells, B cells, and myeloid cells. Animals that have been treated with lipopolysaccharide for a couple of days, or were treated with lipopolysaccharide once, and we waited a couple of days, are now making largely myeloid cells. And that's interesting. It's interesting because most people, I didn't know, it was in the literature if you looked for it, uh, that the bone marrow output was so malleable. Uh, and secondly, uh, that it would focus so much on, on myeloid cells. But it makes sense because the major stress that an animal that's highly infected and an animal treated with lipopolysaccharide thinks it's highly infected, the major stress is in the myeloid compartment that's trying to kill off bacteria that, that are carrying the LPS. So we did a gain-of-function experiment with 155 to see if there was a linkage between this increased 155 and the increased myeloid cell output. Uh, and we did that by making a retroviral vector uh, that expresses 155. Uh, we can show in raw cells that it's expressed very nicely. And it gives rise both to green cells, because we have GFP, and to cells that have high levels of 155 constitutively in them. We then put this into the bone marrow of mice, lethally irradiated recipient mice, put in the, the modified bone marrow, waited a few months. And now the hematopoietic system has been reconstituted with cells, some 50 to 80% of which are overexpressing 155. And what are the consequences of that? The consequences are very clear. The bone marrow is no longer red. It's, it's yellow, uh, because we're making very few red blood cells. Uh, you can look by, at, at, by histology and see that the marrow is a sheet of myeloid cells. The ordinary, obvious uh, uh, platelet precursors and and lymphocytes and others are all gone. Some of these are, are aberrant. Uh, many of them seem pretty normal. And you can see them uh, by, uh, by other kinds of analyses. So what was going on? First thing is we can say that, that 155 probably is a major determinant of what kinds of cells come out of the bone marrow. And that uh, in, in an inflammatory situation, it can really change the bone marrow into a, into a myeloid-producing organ.
But what's its target? And 155 has a long history, and I'm not going to give you that whole history, but most of it involves the importance of 155 in, in lymphoid cells and in cancer. And people had been searching for years for what was the key target of 155. So we started looking through data that we got in the lab when we, when we made tests of its specificity, as well as bioinformatics, and ultimately came down to SHIP-1 as a candidate. And it was largely because it made sense. You could have made arguments for all sorts of other targets, because there are probably 100 good targets. Uh, but none of them made the clear sense that SHIP-1 would make. So SHIP-1 is an inositol 5 prime phosphatase. It's expressed in the hematopoietic compartment, known to function as a tumor suppressor, known to inhibit the PI3 kinase signaling pathway as a phosphatase. It, 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 uh, is a, uh, it counters the, the biochemistry of, of PI3K. It's known to regulate cytokines. And if you sort of put it all together, it looks like it could be exactly the opposite of 155. And so since 155 has to be a negative regulator of whatever it's regulating, uh, you would expect that the uh, functions of SHIP-1 would be exactly counter to 155 if that's what it controlled. And you can see that the site is really a very beautiful site for the seed region of 155. So we overexpressed SHIP-1. Uh, sorry, we overexpressed a, an siRNA against SHIP-1. And it phenocopied 155. Uh, you get this huge amount of myeloid cells now expressed slightly differently than we did before with CD11B uh, on the y-axis uh, and GFP on the x-axis. And you could also see it in the pictures, the SHIP-1 marrow and uh, SHIP-1 knockdown marrow and 155 marrow look similar. Uh, and so I think we can say with some uh, degree of certainty that SHIP-1 SHIP is a key target. Probably not the only target. There's other reason to believe that SOX-1 is a target, uh, in particular in, in uh, uh, T regulatory cells, uh, and that there are a couple of others in other cells. And actually, that's a theme that we see running through things, is that you can often find one target in one kind of cell, but another target in another kind of cell. So a summary of what we know about 155 is that like 146A, it's induced by inflammatory stimuli, stimuli, but unlike it, the target specificity doesn't suggest anything like a negative feedback, but rather a positive role in inflammation. That the key target appears to be SHIP-1, um, and it has been knocked out. It's been knocked out in two laboratories. Uh, and it has multiple effects. They were, they were interested in T cells and B cells, and it has multiple effects in T cells and B cells. But we've now looked at it in uh, uh, myeloid cell, in the myeloid cell context, and I'll show you that in one moment. Uh, and uncontrolled experiment, expression of 155 leads to myeloid proliferation uh, because it controls myeloid-related genes. We don't see frank cancers, but the animals don't really live long enough to see that. Uh, they die of, of uh, 
secondary problems uh, that arise from not having a marrow that's functional. So a positive link between NF-kappa-B expression and cancer in this case may be the continual 155 production, and many human cancers show overproduction of 155. But let me go back to the knockout. And the, the prediction you'd make of a knockout of 155 is that it would be immunosuppressed. Because if it's a positive activator of, uh, of the immune system, then if you knock it out, you should not get as much immune function. We chose to look at that using EAE, uh, <coughs> experimental autoimmune encephalitis, as a model. Uh, because that is a reflection of the strength of the immune response in an animal, even though it's an autoimmune response rather than a, uh, a, a response to a foreign organism. And you can see what I'm going to show you with other kinds of tests, but this one is particularly strong. So the way you get an EAE response is you inject a peptide from a myelin protein into the animals. They make a response to the peptide, they start demyelinating their own nerves, and you can read it out as a, uh, as a behavioral problem. They, they start being unable to use their tail, their back legs. Uh, they get very ill. They, most of them actually recover from it. And sure enough, in the MIR-155 knockouts, uh, you get a much weaker EAE response. In fact, some 40% of the animals get no detectable response, and the other ones have a weak response as scored by a standardized scoring that I won't bother you with. So 155 knockouts, EAE is mutated. This is largely due, as we can show by cell transfer experiments, and others had shown for EAE in, in other circumstances, due to CD4 cells. In particular, the defect looks like it's a defect in the functioning of a subset of CD4 cells called Th17 cells, cells that make a lot of, of IL-17. There's also some defect in the induction of IL-17-producing cells. We originally thought that that might be the primary effect, but it seems to be more in the function of the cells. Uh, but this is a reflection of the fact that the dendritic cell function is, is down uh, in these uh, knockout animals. Uh, and so they make fewer Th17 cells that depend on dendritic cell signaling. So MIR-155 is a necessary part of setting the positive side of the immune system. Uh, it acts by relieving an inhibitory effect of SHIP1, and as I said, probably SOX1 too. And a fine, it, it is part of the fine-tuning mechanism of the strength of the immune response. But if you don't keep it under control, you overproduce it, then you get uh, problems of, of a hyperproliferative sort and cancer in humans. Just, I'm not going to tell you this story uh, of another microRNA we've gotten interested in, 125B. I just want to show one thing which is when you overexpress 125B, basically the same kind of experiment that I showed you for 155, you get the most massive overproduction of myeloid cells we've seen. 
this is what uh, marrow begins to look like here. And uh, you can see infiltration in the liver and elsewhere. Uh, it's by six months of age, or by here, here by four and a half months of age, uh, you have a, a leukemia uh, and just huge liver and spleen nodules of tumor cells. These are transplantable uh, into immunocompromised animals. They are one of the most uh, remarkable tumors I've, I've seen. Uh, and this is sort of my poster child for uh, what a microRNA can do if let loose. So I think we're still scratching the surface of understanding the roles of microRNAs. And just even if you just focus on the immune and inflammatory cell development, on the functions of these cells, 125B actually has remarkable effects on the function of, mild, of, of macrophages, makes them more, more active, uh, and uh, on, on cellular proliferation. We know some targets in some kinds of cells. Uh, we know some of the regulators of the synthesis of these things. Uh, we know how easy it is to elicit remarkable proliferative dysregulation uh, by either knockouts or overproductions. Uh, but we don't really yet understand the setting of that set point that I think these have uh, their major role, in the major role in physiology. And with that, I thank you. David Baltimore, PhD, was one of 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.